Hello, everyone. This is a, quite a special episode of the Unisoft Question. Today, I have uh, Ed Waitzer, uh, former chair of Steichman's, longtime Steichman's partner, former chair of Ontario Securities Commission, former VP of the Toronto Stock Exchange. And you're not even 65, Ed, right? No, I'm almost 68. <laughs> Next week. How, how are you today? I'm doing fine, thank you. How how did you manage to do all of these things? So uh, seriously, I mean, it's a big deal. All, all these three things that I mentioned are a big deal. I don't know a lot of people who, who have done that. Are you a superhuman? Do you have superpowers? Tell us a little bit about it. Um, you know, life is a bit of a random walk. Uh, there's so many interesting things to do. And I think, I think the answer is, uh, I didn't limit narrowly my frame of vision. So, uh, I ended up at the stock exchange because I went to law school, never intending to be a lawyer and got back involved in policy work when I came out of law school and ended up at the stock exchange. Uh, I ended up at Steichman's still not intending to be a lawyer, but, you know, renting space from Steichman's early on because I needed a home. Uh, and uh, it turned out to be a great group of people and a great organization. And uh, yeah, life happens, you know, I, I left Steichman several times to go to the Securities Commission, to go down to Chile. Uh, again, opportunities arise, and sometimes you just have to follow your instinct and your interests and not kind of cling to what you've got. Did you come a full circle and uh, started renting space from Steichman's uh, again uh, recently when you retired? Yeah, renting would probably be, they, they, they've given me the space now. That's the advantage of, uh, but but yes, when I, I, I put a retirement policy in place at the firm when I managed it. Uh, and with the idea of getting older folks out of the way, because reputations in law tend to have a large tail and get in the way of younger people having opportunities, rather than staying on the with the firm as counsel, I decided I'd rather have a little more distance so that I just don't have to worry about what the firm thinks about what I'm doing. And and so I still have kept an office and my assistant at the law firm, but I don't have and I still work with people at Steichman's who I've worked with for for decades, but um, I don't have any economic ties to the firm anymore. I usually talk about the uh, my guests' roots. It's really important to me. I I really want to know about the, the, those things, and uh, I usually start by asking where the guest is uh, originally from. Are you originally from Toronto? No, I'm from uh, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia. My my folks moved to Canada when I was young, so I I went to school in Canada. What was it like to move to Canada? How old were you? Oh, I was I was a young kid. I was preschool, so it wasn't my decision. It was uh, 
um, uh, you know, my, my father had been in a family business and decided he wanted to be a little bit more independent and bought a small business up here. And it was kind of striking out on his own, but it, it, it had nothing to do with me. I, I remember it, but it wasn't a big event for me. Have you ever felt uh, the, the pool of America, being Canadian or being an immigrant in a sense, living here in Canada next door to the U.S.? Have you ever felt this pool? I know that you worked in New York for a few years. Yeah, I, I, I've spent a lot of time in New York. Uh, I, I was there for three years uh, managing the Steichman office in New York, which was a great chapter and sort of great adventure in my career. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in New York because I'm an opera buff. So I, I get down to New York all the time for art and opera and other things. You know, you're not the first guest uh, of the show who was brought here from the U.S. by their parents. So another guest, for example, is Julia Hanningsberg, and she's president CEO of Holland Blue View Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. So she's American too. Yeah. And I think she followed a somewhat similar path. I think she came to Canada a little bit later in life than you. But I'm really curious. Uh, you obviously maintained your ties to the U.S. Your parents uh, grew up in the U.S., they're American. Do you feel any kind of conflict between your Canadian identity and your American identity? Or is it true what the rest of the world thinks that Canadians and Americans are the same thing? Uh, Canadians and Americans aren't the same thing. The United States is the one country in the world that kind of viscerally believes in markets and it manifests itself in every possible way for good and bad. Um, a lot of the work that I've done, uh, especially on the policy side, has reflected the fact that Canada plays a unique role in the world. And not just because it's a resource-based economy, but because it, it's, it, it's, it effectively is a bridge between the United States and other parts of the world, particularly Europe, uh, where the cultures are so different and the political systems are so different. Uh, and the regulatory frameworks are so different, but, you know, Canada, because it's so highly integrated economically with the United States, but very different culturally and politically, sort of can often play that bridging role. Um, and, and that's been something that I've been able to take advantage of from time to time. Please talk about your parents. Who are they? What did they? What they did, and uh, how they raised you? This is really interesting. Uh, my dad was a entrepreneur, passed away several years ago, but an entrepreneur, reasonably successful entrepreneur, small businessman, started out in the uh, wholesale drug business, got into chemical packaging, uh, ended up buying a a small brokerage firm and became involved in the securities industry 
and actually stayed involved in the securities industry until I got involved in the securities industry uh, and then uh, decided to get out. I think partly because he had had a bad experience kind of being in a family business and wanted to didn't want to be in the way he, he had done his thing and so he decided to make way for me and uh, space for me um it's it's not something i asked him to do but it's, it's uh, something that he did so that's my he was a serial small businessman entrepreneur my mother um combined being a mother, a housewife with a bunch of careers. You know, when my dad was in the brokerage business, she got her license and was a research analyst, wrote the research reports for the brokerage firm. She had she was a commercial real estate broker. She was an interior decorator. Uh, so she's uh, she went back to school and got her MBA. So she she sort of continuously challenged herself intellectually and and had her own career. Why did you say you didn't want to be a lawyer when you went to law school? And what did your parents have anything to do with that? No, not at all. I, I, I um, pretty much left home at a pretty young age. I had been involved in setting up a free school uh, and, and in, in a bunch of sort of student politics stuff. Uh, uh, didn't graduate from high school, uh, got involved in policy consulting during the uh, Trudeau government, the Pierre Trudeau government, uh, and at a certain stage decided it was time to get a degree and applied to law school, not on the basis of my academic record, but on the basis of you know, sort of a mature student, even though I wasn't all that mature, uh, and got in. And, and the object of going to law school, you know, I was, my focus at the time was, and to some extent still, on changing the world. Uh, and at the time, it was a time of life when, you know, most of us kind of didn't worry about finding a job or having an income. We, we kind of knew that we could there was always opportunities available. So going to law school was really um, acquiring tools to help me be more effective in changing the world and never intended to practice law. Uh, ended up articling for a guy named Ian Scott, who uh, later became attorney general, but at the time was counsel to Tom Berger on the McKinsey Valley pipeline inquiry. and and. I basically called him and said, you know, I'd like to work with you on the inquiry. Uh, and the understanding was, you know, I had no interest in being asked back, becoming part of the firm. I just wanted the experience of working with him. Uh, and so that's how it played out. And when I, when I finished uh, articling and got called to the bar, I went back into the policy world. I really love how you just called someone up and uh, a very important person just asked. Uh, this theme came up in my interview with Justice Sawson, the importance of asking and how people underestimate the power of asking. I really appreciate this uh, story. You worked as a corporate lawyer all your life. You never litigated, correct? 
Correct. Okay. Do you think that litigation... Except when I, except when I was articling. You know, yeah. Ian, Ian was a, uh, an appellate counsel. So right. I wrote factums for him. Right. Do you think that litigation and uh, corporate law are just two different professions or just what, as we call uh, 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 this profession in Canada, so being a solicitor is different, completely different from being a litigator? No, on the contrary, I, you know, the, the partner who I have spent the most time with at Steichman's over my career is a litigation partner. Um, and, and again, part of that is, you know, I've always enjoyed sort of being out at the edge of the law and where possible shaping the law. Uh, but, you know, I can give you a list, a long list of either transactional work or policy work where it was a combination of corporate law and litigation. So, you know, starting with BC, where I acted for the board of BC or, or Magna or, um, uh, the, the list goes on. So it's, you know, corporate law and litigation are tied together because corporate law is so dynamic and, and the way corporate law evolves isn't by amending the statute because there's not a lot of political currency in reopening corporate law statutes. It evolves through litigating cases. So the oppression remedy uh, has evolved through litigation. Directors' statutory duties have evolved through litigation. And litigation, I, I mean broadly, because it's also cases that are heard by securities regulators. And you know there are a bunch of different ways that the corporate law framework evolves, but it's, it's all litigation. What is the biggest difference between how litigators think and how corporate lawyers think? Uh, I think good corporate lawyers think two ways. One is how to get things done. Uh, and they don't feel constrained by the law. They, they see the law as a tool to getting things done. And, and if they're really good, they also think it's, it's a little bit like Wayne Gretzky. It's, it's not where the puck is, it's where the puck's going to be. Uh, they, they think about the trajectory of the law and expectations around the law and how you can use that and shape that. Litigators think about the law. <laughs> like they're, 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 their focus is on, isn't on getting deals done. Their, their focus is on uh, winning cases um, uh, or fixing the law sometimes when when the law clearly needs to be developed in a certain way uh, but it's their focus isn't transactional it's it's around a set of facts and how you frame the facts to get a desired outcome you said that litigators are focused on fixing the law. Do you think sometimes litigators break the law because they're so focused on the case at hand and they ignore the larger policy implications or the larger context? And sometimes they take positions that seem untenable just because they want to protect the best interests of their client, but they win because they're good. And now the law is sort of screwed up because it worked for this particular case, but now for everybody else, it's not going to be so good. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't call that breaking the law unless they are misrepresenting facts or, or you know, there, there are some famous cases. Um, uh, you know, the Abu Ghraib case where um, it, it turned out that the uh, the, the then, uh, I think, Deputy Attorney General in the United States misrepresented the law, uh, failed to cite the leading case uh, in before the tribunal, and it later came out. Ironically, he was trying to protect the administration and was rewarded by being appointed a judge, which is, you know, the American system. But you know that that's mis that's unethical, uh, but. But arguing effectively and getting to an outcome that may take the law in the wrong direction isn't unethical. And, and I guess you have to have a certain degree of confidence that over time, those things sort out. It's like a pendulum. They, you, you don't always get good decisions out of the judicial process, but over time, and, and you know, judges don't get to choose their facts or cases, exactly. uh, but, but over time, uh, the trajectory of the law is pretty clear and 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 reasonably predictable and responsive to social expectations and norms. When I was saying breaking the law, I wasn't suggesting that they were breaking the law or breaking any kind of rules. I was using the word break uh, in the sense opposite to fix, like breaking a machine, you know, uh, sort of uh, making the law go uh, in in the in the unexpected direction. So, in your interview uh, to the Canadian Lawyer Magazine, you uh, talked about the influence of the courts or on the corporate law and on the development of the corporate law. And you just also you brought this up again just now when you said that litigators um, affect or the courts affect corporate law and its development. So, uh, aren't you? Uh, a little bit upset that litigators, people who don't uh, care about deals, people who don't day-to-day -day, uh, involve themselves with corporate governance, develop corporate law. Uh, shouldn't people like you develop corporate law? So shouldn't it be more through uh, statutory uh, uh, regulation uh, uh, where uh, legislatures consult corporate lawyers like yourself rather than shouldn't uh, rather than leaving this to litigators to uh, uh, influence judges and then have judges make decisions that develop corporate law. You know, there's no perfect system. So what you describe is what happens in Delaware, where corporate law is a business. Uh, it's, it's the main engine of the Delaware economy and where there is a committee of lawyers and judges who review the statute every year to make sure that it's relevant and responsive to uh, the needs of, of corporations and their stakeholders. So it's a very dynamic statute. In most jurisdictions, including can Canadian jurisdictions, as I said, there's there's very little, you know, no judge, no government is going to be elected because they've done great policy work in amending a corporate statute. There's no political currency there. So the system doesn't lend itself to what you describe. Um, and 
courts have been pretty good. You know, I, I think the system has a high degree, when you talk about fixed or broken, I think of the systems having a high degree of integrity in, in, in the sense of structural integrity. It, it, it may take time, uh, but, and there are always some bad cases, uh, but over time, corporate law has evolved. And, and when you compare Canadian jurisprudence and American jurisprudence, you know, Delaware is more robust but for instance, the oppression remedy, which is administered by the courts in Canada, is by far the most potent shareholder and increasingly stakeholder remedy, far more potent than any remedies under Delaware law. Um, you know, the, the, the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in BCE, which uh, extended or, or affirmed the extension of directors' duties to the corporation as including stakeholders uh, was way ahead of and, and remains ahead of U.S. corporate law statutes, which are gradually getting there. So there's, there's no, and, and I'm just comparing those two systems. We could look at Europe, which is different again. Um, they all work in their own way, and, and it's very contextual. It, it, uh, it, but, but to go back to your original question, you know, I think the, the relationship between lawyers and between corporate counsel and litigators is symbiotic. As I say, I spent, I have spent more of my time with one litigation partner at Steichman's than anybody else in the firm over 40 years. Uh, we almost know how we each think. Um, his skills are in framing issues and arguing. Uh, my, my skills are in negotiating and thinking through some of the policy implications, um, but we work together seamlessly. You praised the oppression remedy regime in Ontario just now. I mean, the oppression remedy is, um, you know, protection of minority stakeholders is one of the goals of corporate law. There are other goals, for example, uh, protecting. Uh, uh, certainty and stability. There are other goals, I'm sure. So in your view, what is the biggest problem with the uh, corporate um, regime, corporate statutory regime in Ontario right now? You know, I think it works pretty well on, on the oppression remedy. And I, I've written an article on this what you just said is probably an accurate description of the law, which is that it is designed to protect shareholders and particularly minority shareholders. My bet is that it will increasingly be used to protect other share other stakeholders as well, uh, including um, stakeholders or interests that may not be uh directly representable. So for instance, future generations or the environment um, in response to externalities that corporations produce. So, and, and I think the existing law allows for that, but could be clarified to be clearer that it allows for that. So, so I, I see that as an emerging sort of field in corporate law, uh, but I've, I've also suggested that the law could be clarified to facilitate that. Speaking of the symbi uh, symb uh, um, okay. 
speaking of collaboration between litigators and solicitors, I'd like to bring up the commercial list here in Toronto. Do you think the, this specialized court is part of uh, Ontario's efforts to pre- improve uh, the corporate regime in this province? Yeah, it's it's been it's been a and, and this goes back a long way, um, and but it, it has been a huge contributor to um, evolving high quality corporate law. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you two examples, and I, I, I say this, you know, when we did the Air Canada restructuring, I can't remember how many years ago it was. Uh, it created a bit of a political furor in Quebec because. Although Air Canada was a Quebec-based company, we decided to bring the restructuring not only in Ontario, but before a particular Ontario judge who we thought was uniquely capable of handling the complexities of that case. Lots of huffs and puffs in Quebec. Um, When it came time to do the BCE transaction, same issue two came up and and um, for better or worse, the board of BCE decided that the transaction should be governed by Quebec law because BCE was a Quebec based company. And in part because of the political backlash that had happened in Air Canada. Uh, the result was a good try. We knew it was going to get litigated. The result was a good trial decision, but a very confused and split decision at the Quebec Court of Appeal, uh, which took us to the Supreme Court of Canada. The good news is we got great law out of the Supreme Court of Canada. The bad news is that the deal never proceeded because by the time we got to the Supreme Court of Canada, we were in the jaws of the financial crisis. Uh, So it's interesting to think back and say, if we had done that, transaction under Ontario law, what would have happened? And I think what would have happened is the deal would have gotten done. We wouldn't have gotten the Supreme Court decision. So you win a bit and you lose a bit. But but the, the, the commercial list has been a huge advantage for, for, for Ontario and some great judges. And what was the name of the judge on the commercial list? For Air Canada, it was Farley, right? Farley, okay. Jim Farley. Uh, okay. So do you think that you just mentioned the Quebec Court of Appeal? Do you think the coexistence of two different legal systems in Canada makes Canada a more or less attractive jurisdictions jurisdiction for corporations? Sorry, the question again. Uh, do you think that the coexistence of two legal systems in Canada, Quebec and common law, uh, make Canada more or less attractive jurisdiction? It's, um, you know, it's it's very much at the margin. Uh, you know, you can argue it's marginally less attractive because there's that added complexity. Uh, the reality is that there's been a very high degree convergence between the two legal systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the major law firms operate on a national basis um uh, so it, it it isn't really a barrier to 
getting things done. There, there are distinct differences uh, in the civil law system in Quebec. Um, uh, and in some areas that's been, um, you know, Quebec has been at the leading edge in, in developing concepts that have then bled through to the rest of Canada. So when, when you think about notions of fairness uh, in contract law or tort law, some of the leading cases come out of uh, the civil code or interpretations of the civil code. There are two tiers of, of law in, in Canada, in my view, and maybe in many other countries as well, in the US for sure. Uh, there is a tier where uh, law firms like yours, like Steichman's Operate, the Seven Sisters, law firms that are the regulars on the commercial list, it's a very closed uh, circle. And then there is the tier for everybody else. And it's not a criticism. I think it's just a statement of fact. And the question is, do you think that society simply distinguishes between uh, issues that are important to the society and, uh, at large, such as, you know, the Air Canada case, such as a multi-billion dollar deal where many, many jobs are at large, uh, at stake, and so on. And, and then, then individual cases, you know, a car accident, a motor vehicle accident, or, you know, debt collection, things like that, that, you know, everybody else is bringing to the court. And we have two different streams in Ontario, the commercial list, and we have the regular civil list, at least in Toronto. So do you think this is a, an accurate description of reality? Do you think it's justified because some cases have societal implications and only large firms or so-called elite firms should handle them. And then every, everything else is such a, a low stake uh, situation then that pretty much everybody, uh, every lawyer can be uh, entrusted with dealing with that. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with your characterization. I think, I think the stratification is actually more on the corporate law side than on the litigation side. Um, and then to the extent that the transactional side of law generates litigation, it, it feeds through, but you can't, a small practitioner or a small law firm can't do large transactions, you know, and on a, on a deal like BCE, you know, at any point in time, there were probably 30 or 40 lawyers at Steichman's working on the transaction over two years. Um, you can't, that can't be handled and, and, and with various degrees of specialized expertise that, you know, you just don't have in a smaller firm. Uh, and the other side is if you're the board of a BCE, you want to go to, um, a firm that has a reputation, uh, in part to protect yourself. Um, so so there's very much a stratification uh, of work on the transactional side. On the litigation side, you know, it's not an accident that a lot of the best litigators have left big firms and set up boutiques uh, in order to avoid the conflicts that constraints that big firms throw up. So they, they learn their skills at big firms doing transactional work. Um, but a, a litigator isn't 
constrained in the same way. You don't need 40 litigators working on a case. Um, you may need 10 or 15 if it's a big case. But um, so I see less stratification, less structural stratification on the litigation side compared to the transactional side. You're right that uh, almost all so-called elite litigators came from the big firms or um, let's put it this way, the elite litigation boutiques were founded by um, lawyers who came from big firms. Yeah. McCarthy's, for example, is a factory <laughs> of such yeah. litigators, right? Uh, so do you think this uh, large firm tier that's more or less settled in right now, more or less stable, the tier of law firms that large corporate boards trust. Do you think this tier is impregnable? Do you think no new entrance will no. happen? No. What's uh, going to happen? Absolutely not. And, you know, I can, you know, at, at various stages, uh, you know, is, is certainly when I was managing Steichmann's and we thought about merging with other firms or uh, domestically or internationally, or, um, you know, someone could set up a, a group of top rated securities lawyers could set up a boutique tomorrow and capture very significant market share. Uh, they may not have all the practice areas and, and even a firm like Steichmann's, which over time has narrowed its focus to sort of high margin transactional work. So, you know, it doesn't do family law or criminal law or wills and estates anymore. So uh, we've shrunk or, or the firm, I shouldn't say we, the firm has shrunk rather than grown and specialized, but I, I think the market, you know, there, there are clear barriers. And if you look at, you know, law firms are pretty conservatively managed. So the status quo tends to perpetuate and the tiers have stayed relatively static. Uh, but I, I, I think that's contestable. And, and every once in a while you see, you know, you see somebody like Waleed Solomon uh, who basically develops a practice out of nothing. Uh, and leverages that to um, very aggressively uh, capture some of that top tier work for a firm that historically didn't have that work. Do you think technology will allow individual lawyers to do what only large firms could do before, even if they don't have the expertise necessarily, but just pure tech? It's a great question. I'm, I, I'm not smart enough to know. I, I, I suspect the answer is, is yes. Um, uh, and it, it raises interesting questions for the whole law firm model of how, you know, the apprenticeship model of how younger lawyers develop experience and judgment. Um, so I suspect the answer is yes, but I'm, I'm not smart enough to have figured out how that disruption will play out. Speaking of technology, uh, since you are chair of Ontario Securities Commission, I have to ask you this. What do you think about cryptocurrency? You know, you should ask some of my kids <laughs> who, who invest in it. I'm, uh, 
you know, I, I, I don't invest in things that I don't understand. And cryptocurrency fits that category. What is your vision for the corporate law in Ontario or in Canada for the next 10, 20 years? What's going to happen? What's going to change? You know, I, I think, and it's not just corporate law. Uh, and, and as you probably know, I've written a lot about this over the years. I think the law tends to follow public expectations, uh, um, almost in parallel to how political machinery does. Um, and I think, you know, our, our expectations are changing. Our focus is changing um, pretty radically and in a, in a very exponential way to a focus on how we address systemic risks in society and, and many of which are global. So they they don't, they're not just the purview of domestic corporate law. Um, and we see that playing out in areas like the pandemic or climate, uh, but it will spread to issues like inequality, um, all of which are issues that, you know, 10 years ago, any academic would have said this has nothing to do with corporate law. And today, everyone almost takes for granted that this is at the core of corporate law, not because it's referenced anywhere in any statute, but it's because what society expects of corporations. And I want to thank you so much for this interview. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Likewise.